turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Chapter 12. We are continuing our look through what's normally termed the Passion Week. The, the uh, last week of our Saviour's earthly ministry. And a quick recap on, remember, on the Saturday was the anointing. Sunday, the triumphal entry. Monday, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. It's now Tuesday. Tuesday is the busy day. Tuesday is the teaching day. Tuesday is the day, remember, when they challenged his authority and said, by what right do you have? By what authority do you have to come into the temple and do these things and teach these things? Now we're looking to look, we're looking at going, we're looking at, at four questions. Four questions that are asked during this period of Tuesday. We're now looking probably around midday Tuesday, possibly into the afternoon Tuesday. Lots happened. A lot more is going to happen, but it's Tuesday afternoon, Passion Week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now you might open our eyes. Teach us, Lord, of the things which are found in your word, the things which you would have us to know and to understand. For we ask these things in our Saviour's name. Amen. First question we find in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, what we have here is a very clear example of that old principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. These two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, hated each other. Absolutely hated each other. The reason being, the Pharisees were a religious group. They were the religious teachers and leaders of the day. The Herodians were a political party. They were the supporters of Herod. Herod wasn't even Jewish. So you can imagine how well these two got on. But they have combined together to try and trap the Lord Jesus. And they, have, they ask him a question. But first of all, have a look at what they say to him. They say to him, Master, we know that thou art true. Well, no, they didn't believe he was true. Otherwise, they would have accepted his teaching. So they're lying through their teeth in their very first words. In fact, they called him master or teacher, and they didn't believe that either. Then they said, and carest for no man. Well, that's not true either. It's not that Jesus didn't care for any man. He loved people. He wept with them. He laughed with them. He went to their parties. Jesus loved being with people. 
but teach us the way of God in truth. Well, they didn't believe that either. They didn't believe he was teaching the way of God in truth. So they're lying right from the word start. When people flatter you, they're almost always lying. Think about it. If someone says, oh, you're, you're clever and you're intelligent and uh, you're wonderfully good looking, well, chances are they're lying. Number one, they don't believe it. And number two, it's probably not true anyhow. So They try flattery. And then they ask him the question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Do you have to pay your taxes? Now, of course, it was lawful under Roman law to give tribute to Caesar. But they're saying, is it lawful under the law of God to give tribute to Caesar? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. Literally what he said was, Bring me a denarius. Okay, usually translated penny, bring me a denarius. Well, what was a denarius? I do have one at home, but, we, but I forgot it. But what a denarius looked like was about that big. It's about the size of a five cent piece. Okay, that's how big a denarius was. It's a little coin. It's not a big coin at all. Little coin. When they first minted them, they made them about one third silver. By this time, they were about 10% silver. And by the end of the empire, they would be about 3% silver, which says something about the empire. It had on the front a, an image of Caesar, the Caesar who was in power when it was minted. Most of the ones in Palestine at that time were from the reign of Augustus, Augustus Caesar, they would have had his image on the front and on the back they had a, an image of a goat. A goat? Yes, a goat. Because Caesar was born under the sign of Capricorn. So he stamped an image of a goat on the back of his coins. That's what a denarius was. How much was it worth? Well, it's recorded that it was a Roughly a day's wages for a labourer. That's a, a pretty loose sort of a thing because, you know, labourers vary. Some labourers are worth two denarius a day and, you know, some labourers aren't worth a denarius a week. A better measure, perhaps, is that a Roman legionnaire was paid 225 denarii a year. Okay? That gives you a, a rough idea of what it was worth. So, if you'd say a soldier today, an ordinary grunt infantryman, 40000 a year, you know, we're talking about a couple of hundred dollars, okay, for a denarius. It's worth a couple of hundred dollars. For a thousand of these, you could, get, you could buy yourself a slave, an average sort of a slave. For 2000 you could get a pretty girl slave. For 4000 you could get one who played the piano or some other musical in instrument. That's a denarius. 
And he said, bring me one and show it to me. <coughs> now, I've mentioned this before. These were the same Pharisees who said they were too holy to touch Roman money and allow it into the temple to use people to pay their temple tax. But they seemed to have no trouble reaching into their pockets and hauling out a Roman denarius when one was needed. Their hypocrisy has begun to show already. And they brought it. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Now what's interesting is that that's still the same now. If you look on the front of a coin, whose image is there? The queen's. The ruler's image is still there. We've, we've kept that habit all the way through from Roman times. And whose who's superscription? Well, if you have a look at it, it says Elizabeth II, Caesar's. And in my denarius at home, it has the image of Caesar Augustus and his name. Uh, it might have had on there, you know, uh, legal tender for all debts, public and private, in the greater Roman Empire, but it was his image. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We say, we ask the question, are Christians obliged to obey the law? What if it's a bad law? And our Lord says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We're quite happy to go out there and drive on government roads. We're quite happy to go to a government hospital. We're quite happy to have the army defend our borders, but yet we moan and complain about paying taxes. It's Caesar's money. Give it back to him. And it brings to light this whole question of the involvement of Christians in politics. Now, we are commanded to pay, to, rather to pray for our government. We did today. It's a command in scripture. Pray for those who have rule over you. It doesn't say pray to change those who have the rule over you. Should Christians be involved in politics? Oh yeah, we should be. As concerned citizens, we have a right and a duty to, to elect the very best person we can think of to our government. It's not just a privilege, it's a right and a duty and we should do it very, very carefully. But a Christian minister especially has no place telling people how to vote. And I'm sorry, but I don't care whether your name is Desmond Tutu or Ian Paisley or Martin Luther King. You need to stay out of politics if you're going to be a minister. You want to be a politician? Terrific. Stop being a minister.
You can't be both. You can't be both. Because inevitably, when we try and push the church into politics, you know what happens? Politics pushes into the church. And if it's bad for politics to have ministers in it, it's worse for the church to have politicians in it. Separation of church and state. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. And don't mess them up together. You want to be a politician? Great. Be a good one. Be an honest one. Be a Christian one. Bring the values and the principles of Christ into politics. Terrific. But not as a minister. They stared at him. They marveled at him. They didn't have an answer for him. And then came the second question. You know, when you think about it, that first question is, how do we live in today's world? Really? That quest, first question is, how do we live in today's world? And the answer is honestly, openly. That's how we live. The second question that came to him was in verse 18. Then came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. Now, there were two. They talk about two main groups in the, uh, in the Jewish society or religious groups. There were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees. Okay? Sadducees were a much smaller group. Not that many, but very powerful. They, believed in, they did not believe there was a resurrection. Now, that makes it easy to understand the difference between the two groups because the, the, the Sadducees didn't believe there was any resurrection and that made them sad, you see. Okay? Now, the Pharisees believed they were really holy. So they'd get up in the morning and look in the mirror and they'd go, oh, I'm fair, I see. So Pharisees, Sadducees, that's the difference. They, said, they say there is no resurrection and they asked him. And they asked him this classic conundrum. Okay? And it's, a, it's one clearly that the Sadducees had presented to the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection and said, explain this. And here's the, the, the way it runs. Master, Moses wrote unto us. Oh, hang on. Where did he write that? Okay. Just check that it's correct. No harm in checking. Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and, ha and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of the brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. Okay? Moses put this in for inheritance problems. Okay? You've got two brothers, as they would have in a, living in a family group. There would have been dad and all the brothers and all the in-laws together. A brother died and had no children. What happened to his inheritance? Well, if he was married, one of his brothers would marry the widow and that guy's children would inherit not 
their fathers, but the dead man's share. Okay, can you see how it worked? The, the, it was to preserve a family line. Okay, that's the way it worked. It was not a question about the widow. It was a question about the children and the inheritance. So here's the conundrum. If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Correct? Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed, and last of all the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her to wife. Okay, what was their problem? Well, their problem was, they said, if, if the dead rise, what about family relationships in the resurrection? Whose wife is she? And their problem was really a, a problem we get a lot with people, and they say, I can't understand this in the Bible, so therefore it's not true. It's really what they're saying. They're saying, I can't understand how this resurrection thing works, so therefore it doesn't exist and I don't believe in it. And when you analyse that, that's a pretty arrogant sort of an attitude, isn't it? I can't, I can't understand how God does things, so I'm not going to believe he exists. That's pretty much what they're saying. They're saying, I can't understand how resurrection works, so therefore resurrection doesn't exist. How would that go if you tried to apply that to the world today? I don't understand how a jet turbine works, so therefore planes don't fly. That's basically what they're saying. Uh, you know, there are lots of things I don't understand. I do not understand string theory. But to say it doesn't exist, well, I, I recent, a few years ago I, I took the time out and read uh, Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time. I just ignored the maths and, and read through it. I didn't understand a lot of it. That doesn't mean it's not true. There are lots of things you don't understand doesn't mean they're not true. These people were saying, I don't understand how God does this, so therefore it doesn't happen. And you get people today who say, I don't understand how God works, so therefore he doesn't exist. Just because their tiny little mind isn't big enough to understand how God works, they therefore assume that he doesn't exist. I'm sure that really upsets God. I don't think he really is too concerned whether you can understand him or not. Because believe me, he can understand you really well. And an attitude that says, if I don't believe it, it doesn't exist, would not be tolerated in first year university. Wouldn't be tolerated in HSC classes to say, if I can't understand this, it doesn't exist. 
And yet that's the attitude of many people's theology. If I can't understand God, then he doesn't exist. That's So Jesus then proceeds to explain to them, and he says, Ye do err, therefore, you do therefore err. Why? Because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. First of all, if you want to understand the scriptures and understand God, what you have to do is read them. Well, hadn't these people read the scriptures? Not properly. Because I want to notice what scripture he uses here. Now, the other thing about the Sadducees was that they would not accept as authoritative anything which was not written by Moses. Okay? So they said the Psalms, the you know, Proverbs, um, you know, Kings, Chronicles. No, nah, no, nah, not going to accept any of that. If Moses didn't write it, I'm not going to accept it. So he says, You do err, therefore, because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Well, therefore, he goes, okay, there's the first, first simple solution. The resurrected dead are not like us. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. So it doesn't matter what the relationship was between these seven men and the woman. Neither, none of them are married when, in the resurrection. But then he makes a, a brilliant point here and says, As touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses? The very place that you say is authoritative. How in the bush God spake unto him, and if you're wondering where that is, that's in Exodus 3. How in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now, what? what? What's he getting at? See, it's, it's all to do with the tense. That's what the whole point is here, the tense, the tense, you know, past, present and future. In the book of Moses, when, when Moses is standing at the burning bush and God speaks to him and says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham right now because Abraham's with me. Abraham is still here with me. And I am the God of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob because they're here with me. That the dead, they're dead on earth, but they're not dead to God. They're alive to him. For in God, there is in fact, time is a very flexible thing to God. For he, knowing the past perfectly, knowing the future completely, and existing in the present, it's really almost all one continuous now to him. Past, present and future are not that significant to God because he knows the end from the beginning. 
He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. So he's dealt with the scribe, with the, with the Pharisees. He's dealt with the Sadducees. He's dealt with the people who are politically motivated. And we come to the third question. See, that first question was, how do we live in the present? The second question was, how will we live in the part in the future? Okay, how do we live in the present? Do we? The answer is, do you live honestly? How do we live in the future? Resurrected bodies. That's how we live in the future. The third question, and this is interesting, verse 28. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well. We, we give the scribes and the Pharisees a lot of hard, you know, a lot of, lot of bad press. And there were some pretty rotten ones there. But some of them were good people. And this scribe was one who's looked and he's listened and he said, you know, this guy's onto something. This guy is he's really answering well. And I want to learn more about him. There were good religious leaders in that day. While there were some evil, rotten ones, there were good people. Men like Nicodemus who though he came to Jesus by night, understood what he was saying. Men like Joseph of Arimathea, who would put it all, put it all on the line for Jesus' body. There were even, remember, men like wise Gamaliel, who told the, 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 the Sanhedrin, don't get caught up fighting against God because you won't win. There were good religious leaders in that day. And this man was one of them. He'd studied the word of God and he understood stuff and he wanted to learn more. And he asked him a question. Which is the first commandment of all? Now, it doesn't mean first in time. What was the first commandment in terms of time? Don't eat that fruit. That was the first commandment in time. He's saying, what is the first commandment in importance? What is the most important thing? Oh. First question, how do we live in this present world? Second question, how will we live in the future world? But the third question, no, this is better. This is a must, much better question. What's the most important thing to know? <coughs> hey, this guy is asking a good question. And he's asking it of the right person. And you'll notice that where in the previous questions, Jesus is quite harsh on those who are, who are asking them. But this man, who is asking out of a genuine wanting to know, gets a very complete and beneficial answer. It's interesting too, he's not just after Jesus to, say, to point at one and go, oh, this one. What he is after is Jesus' comments on it. He's saying, Master, teach me something. Instruct me in something. 
out of the word of God, give me something that I need to know. In verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is. The next bit is, as far as we can tell, exactly what he would have said. Because he wouldn't have said it in Aramaic or Greek. He would have said, The first of all the commandments is. Shema Yisrael Yehovah Eloheinu Yehovah Achad. That's it. It's called the Shema. You can hear it every Saturday in every synagogue in Hebrew. And what it is, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's it. And that's it in Hebrew. It's, it's called the Shema because that's the first word in Hebrew. Hear. Listen up. Pay attention, Israel. Because the first point that marked Israel as different to every other nation was they said, not, a, not is our God better than your God, our God is the only God. They were the first nation to say, it's not that our God's bigger than yours, your God doesn't exist, and ours is the only God that exists, and it is the only Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. If you have a look at it, Deuteronomy 24, it's, it's worth a look, Deuteronomy, sorry, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Because this will, will bear into another passage. Just something I want to point out here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Now, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. That's it. You notice that it stops? There's no more commandments after that. You think, oh, this is the start of the Ten Commandments. No, it's not. This is the summary of the first half of the Ten Commandments. Back in, in Mark, verse 30, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like... Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Did anybody ever tell you that, you know, loving your neighbour as yourself was a, uh, a New Testament concept? Ever heard that, you know? That the God of the Old Testament was this mean, evil, violent, nasty guy. 
And the God of the New Testament is all loving and sweet and nice. And ever heard that that line coming across? The commandment: Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. New Testament command? No. Leviticus nineteen. Leviticus nineteen eighteen. You remember Leviticus, that book with all the boring and dull ceremonies in it? The book that nobody can be bothered studying because it's so boring? <laughs> right? Leviticus 19, 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, for I am the Lord. It's an Old Testament teaching. Love your neighbour as yourself is an Old Testament teaching. There is no difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Same instructions are in there. Love your neighbour as yourself is straight out of Leviticus. Well, The scribe said unto him, verse 32, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbour as himself is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a seriously intelligent understanding scribe. He has understood the principle of loving God first, loving your neighbour as yourself, and that obeying God is far more important than all the ceremonies that you can do. Then Jesus saw that he had answered discreetly, wisely, intelligently, and said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. He said, Almost. He said, Almost. You've got it. Almost, you've seen the whole thing. So what had he missed? What had this scribe missed? He'd understood that you need to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. He's understood that you had to love your neighbor as yourself. What had he missed? What hadn't he understood? Well, the thing he hadn't understood was, you can't do it. You can't make it. You can't live like that. None of us can live like that. You can want to, you can try to, you can strive to, but you're not going to make it. None of us can say that we love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. None of us really honestly will admit that we do love our neighbour as ourselves. We try, but we don't really make it. And that was what he had missed. He had not, he had understood the law and what it meant, but not where it was leading. He'd understood the principle and he desired to serve God. And there's one Last question coming. Look over in Matthew chapter 22. 
one last question. Verse 41 of Matthew 22. We've had the question, how do you live in today's world? Honestly. How will you live in the future world? Spiritually. How are we to to conduct ourselves by the precepts of the word of God? The last question of the four questions. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, the son of David. Now, please understand, he's not referring to himself. Right? He's not saying, whose son am I? He's saying, the Christ, the Messiah. In your considered opinion, who is his ancestor? Okay. And they say, David. Correct. Now, if you want to love the way these questions are asked, you see that there's always a twofold way the questions go. There's the first question that sets you up, and there's the second question that kicks you in the head, because that's the way these, these people would argue. They give you a question, and you'd, you'd answer it the only way you could, and you'd realise you'd left yourself wide open for some other sort of comment. And as I've said before, if you want to see a guy who does this brilliantly today's world, Jeffrey Robinson, hypotheticals, have a watch of him. He uses the same sort of argument. He is a brilliant lawyer. Do not ever get on the wrong side of him in a court. Right? Because he will do the same thing. He will ask a question, and when you give the answer, he will say, in the light of this, what you've just said. So, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Who's, who is the ancestor of the Messiah? And they say, the son of David. He saith to them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then calls him, <coughs> calls him Lord, how is then he his son? Now, yeah. he's his son, he's a direct descendant. No, no, what we're getting at here is the principle that they worked on was always that the younger should give honour to the elder. Okay? Always, always, in every situation, the elder was more respected than the younger. So therefore, David's descendants should always give honour to David. But David calls the Messiah, his descendant, Lord. How does he do that if the descendant should give honour to the ancestor? It doesn't work out. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fit. So let's have a look at it. This is Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Middle of the Bible, pretty much towards the end of the book. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, 
Sit, on, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Okay? So what, what picture have we got here? The picture we've got here is Jehovah on his throne saying to the Messiah, sit here next to me on my right hand, the position of power and authority, and next time you have to get up, your feet will be upon the neck of your enemies. It was actually done that way sometimes in ancient times. The conquered king would be brought before the throne and he would have to prostrate himself and the king would then stand up and put his foot on his neck. Quite a, a, a symbol of, of authority and power. And that's, what, that's what the psalmist is saying. Jehovah is saying to the Messiah, sit next to me and next time you stand, your feet will be upon the neck of your enemies. Now, the problem is that that's David's descendant who should be giving honour to David. How does this work? Interesting too, if you have a look at the, uh, at their psalm, Psalms, Psalm 110, it says, The Lord, big capitals, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, one capital little word, Adonai. There's a difference between the two lords, which is getting even more confusing. Because in verse 4, it has the Lord, Jehovah, has sworn and not will not repent. Oh, hang on. This is getting really confusing to those Pharisees. And then in verse 5, the Lord, Adonai, at that right hand, shall strike through kings. The Messiah will knock down kings in the day of his wrath. Oh, this is terribly confusing for them. And they don't know how to answer it. They say, we don't understand. Now, unlike the Sadducees who said, we don't understand, so it doesn't happen. The Pharisees just said, we don't understand. They said, we don't understand how this works. And the answer is, of course, it's really simple. That the Messiah, yes, is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That's how it works. That he was not just having David as his ancestor in his family line, but he was also born of a virgin. That he had no human father. That he was the adopted son of Joseph. And that he was the Messiah himself standing before them. How shall we live? Four questions. How do we live in today's world? Honestly. How do we live in the future? Spiritual bodies. How do we conduct ourselves in today? The scribe said. By the authority of the word of God. And how do you manage to do all that? 
How does that all work? Because the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, is here in front of them. That's how it works. You see, how shall we then live? We get lots of advice from lots of people. But it really comes down to that question. How shall we then live in this world? We want to do the right things. We want to be the people that, we, that God wants us to be. But the question is, how shall we then live? How do we do it? It's not easy. It's not simple. We think, oh, you know, you get saved and it all becomes really simple. No, that's when the hard work really starts. Because it's not easy living in this world. There's a temptation to say, oh, well, you know, I'll just be out for what I can get and cheat on my taxes and be dishonest and get what I can. That's not how we're supposed to live, but it's a temptation. There's a temptation to say, if I can't see it and touch it and handle it, I don't believe it. It's no way to live, but it's a temptation. There's the law, the word of God saying, this is the standard that I hold up to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. And you go, I can't do that. So what does he say? Verse 20 of Galatians chapter 2, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is how we then live. Because that Messiah that he spoke about, the one whom David in the spirit called Lord, is available to us now. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. If you are going to live honestly, spiritually, and according to the Word of God, you are going to need the power of the faith of the Son of God in your life, because otherwise you're not going to make it. It is the power of God in your life which will change things. It is the power of God in your life which will make you able to live the life you want to live and you need to live. It is the power of God in your life which is available to every Christian. It is the power of God which is available now to everybody to live the sort of life they want to live. But you know, you can't start living that sort of life until you are a Christian. For it's, remember it says, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're not a Christian, if you've never come in faith to Christ, 
There is no way you can live the sort of life you want to live. You won't make it. You will fail. Because you can't do it. The life that you want to live is available only, first of all, to those who are saved, to those who are Christians. Is your life a mess today? You look at it and go, oh, I wish I could do this over again. Well, chances are, if you did live your life over again, you might avoid making the same mistakes twice. You just make a whole bunch of different ones. The life which I live, if I want to live it the way I want to live it and the way God wants me to live it, If the life I live, if I want to live a life that makes God happy, makes God pleased with me, that makes God say, yeah, good one, you did that right, I'm pleased. If you want that sort of life, you can't get it without first being a Christian. You need to realise you can't do it yourself. You can't make it on your own. And when you then realise that your life today is not what you want it to be, it's not what it should be, it's not what it ought to be, and you turn in Christ, turn in faith to Christ, you will realise something. You'll realise a very important thing about your life. You'll look at your life further down the track and you will say, to yourself, it's still not what it should be. It's still not what it ought to be. It's still not what I want it to be. But praise God, it's not what it was. The, the whole wonderful thing about being Christian on earth is that you get to look back and you see things in your life, in your soul, in your understanding, in your spiritual growth, are getting better. The unsaved look back and see they're not progressing anywhere. They're making the same mistakes or new ones, sometimes worse ones, and that their life has no place to be found for any future. There's no future in it. Christians look at the future and smile because we know that when this life of Caesar's problems and Caesar's trials is over, there's a resurrection coming. We also know that if we follow the word of God and try our best to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength and love our neighbour as ourselves, That the Messiah, the Son of God, great David's greatest son, is there with us, helping us, supporting us. Four questions. Four questions asking the question, how shall we then live? How shall we live honestly? How shall we live spiritually? How shall we live by the word of God? And how shall we live by the power of the Son of God? This was a time 
when Jesus answered the questions that people brought to him in the temple. They brought to him the same questions that you have in your heart right now. I'll guarantee every question you have in your heart right now will boil down to one of those four questions. Whatever it is, whatever thing you've got in your heart right now that you are saying, how am I going to handle this, will boil down to one of those four questions. One, what's my relationship like to the world around me? Two, what, what fear do I have for the resurrection to come? Three, am I obeying the word of God as I should? And four, does the power of the Son of God rest in me? Every question you have boils down to one of those four. Guarantee it. Today, what's the question you've got? How am I going to live? Where am I going to live? What's my future? How do I conduct myself? Do I have the power of the Son of God within me? These four questions cover everything you ever wanted to know or understand about your life. The most important one is at the end. Have you received the Messiah? Has great David's greatest son come to live in your life? Have you accepted his sacrifice for sin? now on your way to that resurrection that people can't understand. Thank you.